Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. I want to tell everyone what's happening on today's episode. Today, we are going to be talking about feminist pedagogy. Okay, let's get into this. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. All right, Brooke, today I want to talk about why we need feminist pedagogy. Yeah, what's up with that? So pedagogy, science teaching, you know, how to do it in the classroom, <laughs> that sort of thing. And we're a teacher podcast here to help people what? get women's history into their curriculum. And yet, like, fundamentally, what we do as social studies educators needs to shift in order to be more inclusive of women. So it's not just about, like, the curriculum and right. the people and it's the doing of the themes. Thing. Right. It's like, how are we actively engaging the girls in our classroom in the learning process? Yeah. And it's kind of a weird thing to talk about. Later in this season, I want to talk about the status of boys in school because they're actually graduating college at lower rates wow. than their female peers, which is a total reversal from, yeah. you know, mid 20th century. And so something dramatically has changed in that regard because we have a gender swap. But the weird thing is, is that that those shifts that are happening broadly in ed are not really happening in history and history is remaining pretty stagnant. Um, Interesting. So to sort of lay out the data behind why we need feminist pedagogy, I want to give you some interesting statistics. Yeah. Give me the numbers. What do we got? So somewhere between 56 and 58 percent, according to the Brookings Institute, um, of public school teachers that teach the social studies are male. Oh. So, and that's kind of interesting because across the board, 75% of educators in the public school systems are women. Yeah. I bet if people looked like thought about their own educational experience, it would be rare, less men than women. I bet you you could name off more female teachers than male teachers. Yeah. So I want to make really clear, like we need more <clears throat> men in education in Pure, general, yeah. right? Like we need male role models for young boys. We need them to see themselves in the classroom yeah, largely. Elementary, middle, and high school or secondary. Yeah. But what we're pointing out is this kind of like weird point in the data where there's a lot of conversations about getting more women in STEM, but like there are more female teachers teaching science. There are more female teachers teaching math than yeah. social studies. Social studies is the only subject of the major subjects. And I'm including like Math. foreign language, special education. Like this study looked at all of the different, you know, typical subjects in school. And social studies is the only one where there are more men than women teaching that subject. What's that about? You know, like I think I, I don't I don't know exactly, but it's there's something about the field of history that communicates to women that this isn't a place that you belong in. And part of it, I think, has to do with the actual subjects that we're talking about. Like, we're not talking about women. And so it sends this message that, like, women don't belong in this space. Maybe. That's, that seems like it could be the, the case and why people aren't going into it. But another factor is, like, literally how we do it, because how we teach history and government and economics tends to be really like centered around 
skills that are fostered in young boys more than they are girls. So that's where we're going to go with this today. Yeah, interesting. But the other reason, so it has to do with like what's going on in in the classrooms. But the other reason we have more male teachers is we have more men graduating with history degrees. Like you're not going to become a history teacher or professor if you don't have <laughs> degrees in that. What? Um, this goes, this is but also, I also, isn't it true too? Like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like you can get your teacher cert in history a little easier than you can in some of the other subjects. I don't think that's, I mean, it's not true at my institution where we certify teachers to teach. So, but I'm thinking like, um, if you graduate with like a sociology degree or a psychology degree, Mm -hmm. can you go back and get your history teacher cert? You could get something called an alt for certification where you leverage your degrees that you do have and your career experience to become certified in certain topics, certain topics. Social study is really hard to do that, at least in New Hampshire, because you have to prove that you have courses in geography, courses in political science, courses in history. And it's probably easier in the areas that are lacking expert, like lacking graduates. Like like math is probably one that they try and push people toward. Which is terrifying to me because like. Oh, yeah. Hardest subject. (laughs) You can barely do calculus and we're going to like send you off to teach AP Calc. Like that's awful. But anyway. (laughs) Um, Back to back to this. Back to this. So. Most history that we read about is about men, and I think that contributes to it. So in recent biographies, this was a study that was done by Slate in 2017. They found that 6% of the recent biographies that were published in the history field were about women. And so only 6%. So like if we're trying to say like get to 50% and you've got these girls in the classroom reading, you know, relevant topics – only 6% of them are likely to be about women, right? So they're, they're definitely not going to see themselves in I, that. The audience can't see the graph that you're looking at right now, but imagine a pizza and the entire pizza has no women in it. <laughs> and then there's like one little sliver over in the corner that is 6%. Yeah. That is women. Yeah. And so men eat the big piece. <laughs> <laughs> women, there's your slice. There's your slice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so there's not much to know about. And so it leaves a lot of people with this assumption. And we battle this, you know, in online posts all the time. Oh, gosh. Like, with the assumption that, like, women didn't do much in history. So, therefore, there's not much to it's know. And constantly really the conversation. Oh, that's cute. You have a podcast about women's history. And it's like, is there many women that you talk about? I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, I can't. Go, okay. I got to find another table to talk to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, here's your sign. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. I'm like, Um, obviously, you need to listen to it. (laughs) Right. And so women, it's not that women aren't attracted to the humanities. They are. Like, they go into humanities field. They go into English. They become creative writers. They write historical fiction. Languages. Spanish. French. Language. Spanish. (laughs) French. Right. And and that's great, too. But, you know, like, to contribute to the field of history, to actually change this narrative, we need women getting degrees in, like, Hard school, <laughs> hardcore, <laughs> old school history. history you yeah. Know? Like, and we need women graduating with PhDs in history. At the faculty level at college, this is kind of a weird one where they're similar to 
public schools and, and this in the elementary and secondary level, there are lots of women that you will see on mm-hmm. college campuses. Um, but a lot of the women are like me where we're full time, but I'm in a position called teaching faculty where they give me a huge teaching load. I'm contributing nothing to research out there. Well, I am on my own time, not on university <laughs> time. And all the tenure track faculty tend to be male. And it's overwhelmingly male and women in that, you know, kind of senior level, tenure track, full professor vibe are very rare. And um, so it's like 35, around 35%. And this is U.S. universities? This is U.S., yes. But really similar data can be found in the U.K. as well. Interesting. Yeah. There's probably so many factors to that of why that's true. And, you know, encouraging women to go for it. But I also, you know, I think about it in my own career of seeing women in executive level positions. A lot of women that I hear from that didn't go for those opportunities made different choices based off their family planning or their own personal journey and circumstances or the support of the executives that were there to encourage them. So there's all these factors as to why they don't make those choices. And I wonder if in the university system there's some similarities there as well. Yeah. You know, the the idea here is like, if you don't, if your professors or your teachers don't look like you, Mm -hmm. it it makes it really hard for you to see someone like you doing that job. Yeah. And and like living the life that you want and doing that job. Right. So like having a family, having a supportive partner and spouse and running toward this huge achievement of having a PhD, which as you know, takes hours and hours and hours of labor. Right. And so, you know, it's a lot to invest in. It's, it's, yeah. And it's, it's impossible. And then, you know, we could take, it's interesting because the number of African-American people in the field is also kind of problematic for the exact reason. Yep. But statistically, it's less jarring because it's like closer to the ratio of actual African-Americans in the pop in the general population. Oh. Whereas with, you know, women are half of the population. So to see that only 35% of them are in tenure track positions, uh, the, yeah. in the history department. And and it's it's different when you compare it to like any other humanities field where women are basically on par with their male peers. Mm-hmm. History is like way behind all these other ones. Wow. Robert Townsend from the American Historical Association has a couple blogs about this on the AHA website. And if you want to know more about it, you can you can look at things he wrote. And I, I emphasize that he wrote it just because I'm not like being some crazy gendered l- lunatic <laughs> woman over here. Like like people in the organization are, are talking about this problem. So people aren't seeing themselves there. And then you get down to, you know, people actually graduating with undergraduate degrees in history. And um, Townsend said, over the past 20 years, history has graduated some of the smallest proportions of female undergraduates of any field in higher education. Yikes. So, like, that's pretty alarming. That's very problematic. Yeah. He says the, the most troubling problem is that females are not enrolling in these programs at so, entry. So essentially from at a high school age, they're not being encouraged to apply to those programs or enroll in them. But there is a huge push nationally to get more women into STEM programming. And so I think then the narrative needs to reach the high schools that STEM, yes, go for it. Science is math, absolutely. But also history. <laughs> yeah, right. 
And that's the problem. It's the problem is not happening at the college level. It's happening in middle school when you heroify certain men in history and you'd say, okay, these guys are the ones that we honor and we think they're amazing. And there's no equivalent for women. And I'm not a big fan of heroification in the curriculum at all, but it's not talking about a people's history, the experience of people in this time and place. Yeah, giving an equitable experience. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot through the three seasons of this podcast about how, like, what women to talk about and how to get them in and what lesson plans and things like that. This fall, we got a grant from the Library of Congress. Yeah, we did. It was awesome. (laughs) Um, From Waynesburg University um, for the Eastern region, because we're on the East Coast. And we produced 60 inquiry-based lesson plans on women from ancient history all the way up to present day. And wouldn't we say we... Let's take a moment. How many people worked on these lesson plans? Oh, my gosh. So we had 12 interns from all over the country and a couple in the U.K., we had in historians, I want to say there were 22 historians working as reviewers on what the interns and I produced. Unreal. So it, it was a really amazing project. I'm excited about it. A few of the episodes, uh, sorry, a few of the lessons are about queer people in history and trying to figure out like how, like, you know, there's a lot there and like, it also highlights the uniqueness of women's lives in this time and like how could how could a queer couple be independent of sure. a male in like the 19th century yeah. or 18th century Jeez. so so it's kind of that's kind of interesting um, we have a lot of lesson plans on you know it's black history month right now we have a lot of lesson plans on african american women i'm really excited about one that talks about free black women in Louisiana and Mississippi during the abolition period. There's a lot of talk about how black history, when it is brought into the curriculum, is always about slavery and segregation and whatever. And here we are highlighting the lives of people that were not enslaved and contributing to the economy in other ways. And it's it's really neat. And and based on some research um, that our reviewer did, So we have some really amazing inquiries that I hope people check out on our website. They're free to download. Just go get them and use them. (laughs) Um, But what we're focusing on today is is not about the actual content that you're teaching, but about the way that you allow girls to feel like they belong in the classroom. They fit in there. And, you know, there's this idea of a stereotype threat. So just because you're like, I like girls and I'm nice to them in my class, that's not enough based on this theory that came out of Stanford um, in the mid-century. They, In this case, they were looking at African-American students and their success in the classroom and how prejudice against Black people outside of the class impacted their performance in the classroom. They were using IQ and other things to to measure this. And essentially what this this study shows is that Teachers need to acknowledge the stereotype outside yep, and then say to the people, it doesn't apply here. Yeah. And in this case, they need to say, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there about how women didn't do much in history. But in this class, women did. And in this class, all girls are empowered to succeed equal to their male peers. Yeah. And, um, and it's kind of a weird thing. Like, you have to actually 
acknowledge it. Well, it's true in the workforce, too. We have to call out the stereotype, the, the racism or the, you know, discrimination that's happening to that group before we can then lean in to understand a journey. Right, right. So when we when I say feminist pedagogy, what I mean by that is any practice in ed beyond acknowledging it, right, that empowers all students to speak and engage in the classroom. Because the social norm outside of our classroom is that girls I mean, if you went way back, you know, they, mm-hmm. they don't speak publicly. Like in the 19th century, women were not allowed to speak publicly. So that like we are still only the, you know, great grandchildren of yeah. those people. So schools are a public setting and that tradition is impacting us. But that's maybe a stretch for people to see how rules from way, way back still apply. But then you think about things like women sitting in board meetings saying ideas out loud that are sort of ignored by the table mm-hmm. until a man says it, right? And then all of a sudden it's being acknowledged. Oh, that's actually a great idea. And the woman's like, well, Jesus Christ, I said that five minutes ago, you know? <laughs> Which I think people are becoming more aware of those moments. And I think male counterparts even more so, and maybe you're getting to this, but they're starting to say, well, um, actually, she said that already. I'm just voicing it. And let's give her, do you have other things you want to talk about and say? Yeah. And give the mic back to that person. It's, yeah. you know, stopping interrupting culture, stopping, you know, allowing people to feel safe, you know. So you have to do these things as a teacher, too, in your classroom. It's like even creating the norms of how we debate, how we discuss things. In this classroom, debate is welcome. We don't cut each other off. We allow for others to speak. Yeah. We raise our hand. Like you build all those classroom norms in to build safety. Yeah. But you also need to then recognize that the journey is longer for some students who have been discriminated discriminated against historically. So yeah. you have to then point out the journey is longer and we are going to counterbalance that in here. Yeah. And I think a lot of social studies teachers, myself included, say things out loud, like, we love debate in our classroom. I I want you to disagree with me, blah, 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 blah. But what are we actually doing to create a safe space for girls to speak up in that environment? Right. And I imagine right now, a lot of teachers are going, well, I can name three girls off the top of my head who are crazy outspoken and engaged in curriculum and blah, 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 blah. Like, I was one of those girls. You were one of those (laughs) girls. That's why we have a podcast, because we don't give a shit about talking. (laughs) So true. But the point of it is, we are the exception not the norm. And when I think about like, here I am a female teacher. I want more girls to engage in this curriculum. And I reflect on the eight years that I taught in public schools. And at my school, they did end of year awards that the teacher gave out in front of the entire school. And my big award was for critical thinking in history. Eight years, I gave that award out to like, three or four kids, usually one from each of my classes. Yeah. Every year. And I think I gave it to one girl in eight years. Whoa. And it's because the boys outperformed the girls in class. And even though I was saying out loud, I love debate. Come on, let's go. Let's debate. Let's engage. The girls weren't doing it because the norm outside my classroom was saying the opposite. Well, and also... Those those students, your students, you know, when you think about it, the teachers that are listening to this, 
they don't just live in your classroom. They go from your classroom to another classroom to another classroom and their peers, their, you know, counterparts are with them all day. So you might make it safe in your classroom, but they still have to deal with them in math, in English, in PE, in all the other subjects. I'm like, you know, I don't really need to get on, you know, this guy's radar because I don't need his shtick all day. Right. So like in a high school setting, it's almost even harder to counterbalance all of that and build a normal, you know, safe space in your classroom because of the outside things that are happening on for that student, which is... So then you have to think, okay, how do I create a classroom that allows women to talk in a way that they know that they're expected to speak? So then it's like, okay, tomorrow the debate is starting with you and you bring, you know, a female forward or challenge a female to be the leader in the discussion or call on them first. It's like, yeah, you're doing these things in your classroom to call them out too. But I think the key there though is you said expected. They're expected to talk because a lot of women outside of our classroom can get away not talking. Oh, sure. Right. And so here you have to talk. You have to engage. Yeah, and, and it's the, like a piece of your grade. If right. you don't debate, if you don't partake in the debate, here's the percentage of the grade that you're not right. getting. And for the boys, you need to leave space, right? Yep. And, I, and I hate to gender it because we all can think of exceptions. I, there are lots of girls that, like, I want to say, Shh, you need to leave space for oh, other sure, people. Oh, sure, sure. But this is the problem that's outside our classrooms that's coming in. So any student-centered practices that get the teacher away from the podium, because when you... Yeah, preach. When you do something that's like teacher talks, you open it up to students and it's sort of ping ponging off the teacher. That's not actually a class discussion. That's a teacher led discussion. Right. And sometimes I think teachers, not to cut you off, sorry, but I think sometimes teachers feel like they have to lead because the discussion won't go where they want it to go if they don't drive the bus. I know I felt like that when I was teaching and that's not actually the case. You can really drive discussion as a facilitator by being an active listener and pulling people in and saying, okay, well, what do you think, student A? And I want to hear from this group over here, you guys. I haven't heard from you yet. What do you think? You don't have to give them anything, but you're just being the facilitator that drives the conversation. Yeah. So the data that I want to share now It's a bit old. Well, I guess one of these studies is from 2018, but the other ones are from the early 2000s. So some of it needs to be re-studied to look at like where we are now. Oh, yeah, because this generation of women are impressive. Yeah. Actually, one of these is from 2022. So, okay, so it's not that old. But one of the things they found when they looked at students in the classroom is that similar to their male peers outside of the classroom, boys are speaking up even when they're not called on. Um, that's a tendency that boys have more than girls do to to Cute. engage. <laughs> right, right. And that tells us that they feel safe in that space to chime in whenever. And it also just like that's the tendency. Like we need to create social rules in the classroom where you wait until you're spoken to just like the girls are, right? Like just like the girls are waiting to be called on, you also need to well, respect yeah. that your, norm. Your classroom's culture is the behavior you allow. So if you're allowing that debater, whether it be a cis white male or not, if that if that's if they're the non-marginalized group and they're dominant in the conversation, then you have to start to create the culture in your classroom that you expect. And you have to call out that behavior whenever you can. It's true for life. And, you know, if you're creating that normal and you're saying that this is okay, then it will be okay. Mm -hmm. If you're 
holding the line and saying, this is what we expect. This is what I expect of you. If you're pulling that kid aside at the end of the class and saying, I love how feverishly you want to engage. I, you know, I don't want to squelch your fire, but I do want you to respect your peers. And this is the way that I'm asking you to do that. You know, there's tons of ways to have that dialogue with your student to really re-engage and say, this is the behavior in their classroom. Yeah. I imagine a lot of teachers listening know this, that like when you allow students to choose their seats in the classroom, the girls and the boys always sit separately from each other. They like click up, like here's the girls table, here's the boys table. Where do you feel safest in your gender group? Bingo. And studies show that co-ed groupings really fail because boys have a tendency in both the class and the workplace to ignore the contributions of girls in group projects. And I think all of us listening go like, well, wait a second. Some of our top students are girls. Why the hell would boys ignore what they're trying to say, right, in that space? And yet they do. They're they're behaving the way the norms outside of the classrooms are, are right? leading them toward. Yeah. And so, and, and that's, again, it's not true in every exam. And so like, if you want to argue examples with me, like we can do that all day, but th- we're talking about averages here. And so the idea is like, don't, you know, use co-ed groupings selectively. Right. Um, and, and for the purpose of trying to break down those gender barriers that exist outside of our classroom. Well, and then you bring into we're talking about female and males who identify female and male. Right. We're also not talking about they, them. We're not talking about, you know, all the other scenarios that are coming into the today's classroom, which I think the studies will come along that will back up some of the stuff that will help us speak to those pieces. That is an evolving topic yeah. of how to really be conscious of gender norms right. and not leaning into them and how to be really thoughtful about it with as an educator. Yeah. And the same is true. Like a lot of, you know, queer people in academia will go into fields like gender studies or absolutely whatever. And, and that's great. You should definitely do that. We need to produce material there, but we also need to have, you know, gay transgender people teaching the classroom, just like we need to have more girls teaching history because they have, will have a tendency to bring the stories of those like non-binary people to life in their classes. It's, there's so many things out there right now about the workforce of if your leader is queer or of the LGBTQIA community, it's, it builds a much more immediate safe space Mm -hmm. for their direct reports and so I, I can't, you know, say that the stretch is that far. I imagine the classroom is the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's where you see someone of your culture and who is an inclusive person because of their own journey and experiences. It feels like a safer space. So I think as, as cis white women, we have to be really conscious of that. Yeah. There's a great study by Elizabeth Meyer called Sex, Gender and Education Research, The Case for Transgender Studies in Education was published in Educational Researcher uh, just last year. And it's a really interesting study that talks about how schools in a myriad way uh, reinforce traditional binary gendered expectations. Mm-hmm. One of the things she highlighted in this study was simply by looking around your room at the posters that are on your wall and how girls boys and like are there even non-binary people pictured there at all oh gosh are behaving in those images um you could do the same thing for looking at people of color like how you know i i looked around my room the other day and was like okay so i've got george washington i've got jfk (laughs) 
where the hell are all the other people, you know? Yeah. So like, and, and finding those visual images so that when someone walks into the space, they visually see that they can belong in this, in this. Yeah. That you lean into that for them and build a welcoming space. And the cool thing about that is you can. Yeah. The best part about having a classroom for teachers is you can build a visual safe space. There's That's not true for a lot of other places in the world. Yep. And so why not go hard at that? Like right. instantly think about it over the summer. Am I being representative of minority groups throughout the entire classroom? Yeah. What does that look like? Right. Right. And then going into that next school year, having all of those opportunities and having kids bring their own idols forward. Yeah. You know, you tell me all the time that you love when students bring books to you. And we're like, I read this. You're like, great, let's go. Yeah, like, I learned about, uh, this is early in my career, but I learned about Claudette Colvin from a student, yeah. which is like so embarrassing. But whatever. T- yeah. Tis the world we're in. Where Exactly. Exactly. But very cool that your students can bring those things to you. Yeah. I love that. One of the other like weird things that uh, I found in my research is that Teachers tend to give boys more attention in the classroom. Oh, was that part average. of that study? This is a different study, um, but they found that, you know, cisgendered boys get attention. Like the teacher comes over and is checking in on them, making sure they get it. <laughs> Are you sure you're good? And I, I'm really curious about this data in terms of effect. And I'm this is me speculating here, but like, one, why? Two, is it creating a sense of like learned helplessness so that oh boys my gosh. don't have to actually do their stuff because the teacher is going to come over and engage with them in a minute? It's a great question. I don't know. But, but we're watching boys failing, at, you know, not like not succeeding in high school at larger numbers than girls, in college at larger numbers than girls. And is that because we give them way too much support along the journey or is it the opposite? Maybe we need to be giving them more to keep them engaged. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people looking at it right now because of how debated, you know, gender equity is in the classroom right now, but it's an interesting idea. And especially you and I personally, both being moms of cis white males, like, yeah. okay, we have to lean into this. Right. What right. does this mean? Are yeah. we enablers or are we encouraging? Right. Yeah, exactly. And where's the tightrope that we walk? How did the walk? two of us end up with two white boys as our children? Because we've been given the flag oh. to change. To change it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and this is our job. We are out. Th- we're not out there to create strong women. We're out there to create men who make space for strong women. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, I, it is it is fascinating. But I think the idea of giving attention to boys, when we're thinking about it in the lens of trying to create space for girls, be conscious as a teacher how much time you're actually putting in to each of the kids in the classroom. Because I think the subtle message of the teacher being with the boys more is, I'm going to help you through this. I'm with you. And to a girl watching that on the side. Like, you can do this. Figure it out. You can do this. You belong here. I'm going to work with you. Yeah. Uh, it's saying to the girl, like, yeah, good luck, you know, even though like, I think grade wise, girls probably do just fine, because they tend to be more compliant, which is different than telling them they belong. And I want to differentiate because I think there's probably teachers going, well, girls on average get better grades in the classroom than the boys. I, and I don't know if that's true in every case, but like, that might be true in your classroom. And if that's the case, that's different than telling them that they belong here. Yep. 
that's you know like the message is do do you feel like you belong in history is this a degree that you'll go seek after high school yeah i think one of the things i think about though too is like as teachers there's a lot going on that you're like trying to figure out in your classroom in addition to teaching the curriculum in addition to adding all these things and now you got to think about the social constructs of your of what you're doing and your yeah. own biases yeah. breathe, breathe you got this like, i know Go in with best intentions, yeah, and it will always serve you well. And learn, just be a con- perpetual learner. I've never met a teacher who's not a perpetual learner, so yeah. I think I'm speaking to that crowd. But like, just be open to someone teaching you something that you didn't know, and how to build a more inclusive space for them, and you'll figure it out. And then you'll say, next time, this is how I'm going to show up, and I'm going to do it better. Yep. I think understand. This is something we ask people in the workforce to do: is understand your own bias. Yeah, we all have it. It's natural to build bias because it keeps you safe. It's right. actually how you your brain says, danger, danger. You know, bias happens and then it forms in your brain. So you have to actually understand your own bias before you can start counterbalancing it too. Right. It's so funny how people use the word bias as this like negative thing. Yeah, it's not. And it's, it's I love to translate bias to like, this is the lens through which you see the world. And I'm hoping that a teacher listening isn't thinking, oh, gosh, now I have to go do a ton of research no, and, no. you know, keep tallies of how many minutes I spend talking <laughs> to boys or whatever. Please do not and do like, that. Yeah. No, I mean, like, you maybe have a student do that or something <laughs> on the side. But like, but like the idea is we want you to open your lens, right? So so you, you have this bias because you didn't know that it's there. And now it's like become conscious of, of these things. And awareness. And your lens will open up. And you'll see it. And it's a thing where you go, ah, you know, kind of like a yogi meditating or whatever. Like the idea is not that you don't have negative thoughts. It's like you hear that thought and you let it go. Yeah, you know, exactly. You say, like, what are you willing to, to receive? Yeah, exactly. And like the idea is like, oh, I just did it again. I, I just spent like five minutes talking to that guy and a girl asked me a question. And I gave her a one second answer and I moved on. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you like beco- just become conscious of these of these different things. So. I want to reiterate that feminist pedagogy is any learning strategy that forces all students to engage, forces them, right? And it says, no, you all get a chance to speak here. And then, you know, creates ways to stop other people from dominating the conversation. Yep. And, you know, socialization is a social class, right? We do yeah. a lot of debate. We do a lot of projects. We do a lot of things. We're working together. And probably more than other subjects, maybe science could rival us, but like, that's what we do. And so we need to be conscious about how we're creating social norms in our class that allow all students to feel like they belong here. Yeah. Over the rest of the season, Brooke and I will come in every once in a while and talk more about some of these strategies. Coming up, we're going to talk about things like doing certain seminars and using the inquiry model and other strategies to, to create this space for girls to participate And then later on, we're going to talk uh, about the status of boys in schools and what that means for us. Because while we're trying to change a culture in one subject area, there's this larger thing going on outside. Yep. And, you know, like the idea of feminism is that all genders are succeeding. And so how do we create space for boys to also be successful grade-wise in school and go on to degree completion afterwards? I'm ready for this season. I'm so excited. And I hope teachers are going to like the topics we talk about, but also really take some things away that feel like good parade candy and golden nuggets that they can use. Yeah. 
I appreciate it. Well, thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Brooke. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.